Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery once again, following right on the heels of that part one episode on the life of Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse. We got as far as the publication of Backhouse and Bland's groundbreaking book, China Under the Empress Dowager. It was a smashing success, and Backhouse was able to bounce back from all his acute financial difficulties. His father also lined up a position for him at John Brown Limited, maker of fine armor-plated ships of war. On the heels of this book on the Empress Dowager, discussion with Bland was already underway for an encore. This book would be published in 1914, and as mentioned in the last episode, the book was entitled Annals and Memoirs of the Court of Peking, and it's here where we will pick up today. On the heels of this book on the Empress Dowager, discussion with Bland was already underway for an encore. This book would be published in 1914 and was entitled Annals and Memoirs of the Court of Peking, and it's here where we will pick up today. It's now the spring of 1911, and Morrison had been traveling all this time. He was out of Beijing when the book came out. As I mentioned, Dr. Morrison was very possessive of Backhouse. He didn't pay him a salary, but he provided for him in other ways. Backhouse hated how Morrison bullied him all the time like he did, and almost without fail, Backhouse caved to his will. While Morrison was out of town, Backhouse had switched his loyalties to Bland and to French. But once Morrison was back in Beijing and began to lean on Backhouse in the way that he did, Backhouse fell into line. By the end of 1911, Backhouse was back working with Morrison, just like in the old days, but they both despised each other, especially from this point forward. By the summer of 1912, Backhouse will begin carefully planning his escape from Morrison's hold on him. And Morrison didn't stop there. He went after Bland, too. He drove the biggest wedge possible between Backhouse and Bland. Morrison's vendetta against Bland knew no bounds. It wasn't enough just to beat him in the contest of who would control Edmund Backhouse. He also had to destroy Bland professionally and personally. And to rain on Bland and Backhouse's parade, Morrison began dissing the book and passing the word around that this diary that the book was based on was a fraud. Morrison was absolutely livid that Backhouse had worked so closely with him all these years and had kept this diary a secret. There had to be a reason. Morrison made it his business to wreck this book, destroy its credibility by attacking the authenticity of this diary. If there was one way to destroy Bland and teach Backhouse a lesson about going behind his back, the fastest route was in using his megaphone to cast doubt on the credibility of this book. Heinemann, the publisher, got word as early as late 1910 that Morrison was going around spreading rumors about the Jingshan Diary. Bland was outraged and wrote to Backhouse saying that they were under attack by Morrison, urging him to categorically deny all the points that Morrison had mentioned. Even though it was just a hunch, anything that came from Morrison carried a lot of weight, so Bland felt the credibility of this diary had to be saved. Morrison, well, when confronted, of course, denied everything and said he wasn't going around saying anything about this diary being a forgery, but he was. At the end of 1911, the Tsushi book was reviewed favorably by W.E. Levison of the scholarly journal of the Royal Asiatic Society. Levison was quite close to Bland and gave it a nice review. In fact, Levison talked up Bland and hardly even mentioned Backhouse's name or contribution. 
Backhouse, though he had argued to distance himself from the book, felt insulted. By this time, Backhouse was almost totally back-orbiting Morrison's world exclusively. And with that, the whispers and rumors about the authenticity of the Jingshan diary ceased for the time being. Morrison got his way. But Morrison is going to make a strategic mistake. After the end came for the Manchus on Double Ten Day, 1911, Morrison began to see Yuan Shikai as the new power center in China and saw in him a man worthy of Morrison's support and admiration. So George Ernest Morrison began to turn away from his brilliant journalism career and instead became part of Yuan Shikai's gang, supporting him in every way he could. But in July 1913, after Yuan Shikai showed his true colors and quashed the New China movement and turned on the KMT, Morrison realized he goofed. Bland had always said Yuan Shikai was a snake and totally unworthy to rule. But Morrison, a strong believer in Sun Yat-sen and all he stood for, knew he backed the wrong horse when Yuan Shikai began to have royal and imperial aspirations. Also around this time, the collaboration between Bland and Backhouse had produced the second book. This one was sent to the publishers, and in January 1914, Annals and Memoirs of the Court of Peking hit the shelves. Interestingly, this book was authored by Backhouse and Bland, rather than Bland and Backhouse, like the Cixi book. This book gave an overview of China from the end of the Ming to the end of the Qing. This book was shocking in that Despite 1914 sensibilities, there was quite a bit of sex and depravity contained inside the pages. There was so much sex that Backhouse, as publication grew closer, began to freak out about it considering the times they lived in. He feared the blowback would be terrible. And for this, like last time, Backhouse began to make a whole bunch of noise about taking his name off the book. Into 1913, Backhouse had still been working for John Brown in Beijing. Out of nowhere, in the spring of that year, Backhouse, after trying in vain to arrange a purchase, donated a huge cache of books, documents, and manuscripts to Oxford's Bodleian Library. How he got his hands on all four and a half tons of treasures packed in 29 crates, who knows. Backhouse had his ways, and of course was most expert in all aspects of what items were of particular value. China, right after the fall of the Qing dynasty, was in complete chaos, and there was, for many years, a free-for-all to suck up any and all antique treasures from China's magnificent past. A lot of the Chinese art and manuscripts found in museums and private collections around the world were snatched up around this time. Some of the items Backhouse sent to the Bodleian went as far back as the Northern Song during the time of Huizong. There were even six volumes of the massive Yongle Encyclopedia, the Yongle Dian. Mind you, these six volumes only comprised less than half a percent of the total work, but still, it had been thought that this great work, the largest of its kind, had been lost during the reign of the Jiajing Emperor. In July 1913, the collection donated by Backhouse arrived in England. When scholars there opened up the crates and began to examine the contents, the shock and awe within the small world of academic sinologists was off the charts. 
Each item was more incredible than the next. Edmund Backhouse, with one single donation, had made Oxford's Baudelaire, the greatest repository of antique Chinese rare books and manuscripts in all of Europe. These donations he made between 1913 and 1922 made Backhouse a hero. Shortly after his donation, he went back to London for a while, basked in a little glory, visited his sick father, but got no increase in the allowance his father remitted regularly. Then, for no reason, Backhouse turned heels and went back to China. In December 1913, the Times wrote a story about Backhouse and what a brilliant guy he was and all about his amazing donation to the Bodleian Library. The writer of the article was Lionel Giles, son of Herbert Giles, who gave us the Wade-Giles system of romanization. Both father and son made great contributions to the field of sinology. So Backhouse got all kinds of shine on him between the two books authored with Bland and the fabulous donation to Oxford. Backhouse gained a whole lot of respectability. He was loving it and began to fashion himself as a venerable China scholar. Among the honors being heaped on Backhouse was an offer to teach at King's College in London. The chair in Chinese studies was offered to Backhouse, but he was really holding out for the chair at Oxford. That's what he wanted. Backhouse was also fishing for an honorary degree from Oxford because, remember, he didn't finish his degree and left for China suddenly in 1898 before graduating, leaving behind a mountain of debts. To entice Oxford even more for the chair and for the honorary degree, he notified the Bodleian that he had a second huge cache of books, 76 cases in toto, including an autographed scroll by Wang Xizhi himself. You all no doubt recall Wang Xizhi from CHP episode 96. He was called China's greatest calligrapher and lived during the Jin dynasty. You might recall from that episode that Tang Taizong, considered one of China's greatest emperors, insisted to be buried in his tomb with a precious copy of Wang Xizhi's most famous work, the Lanting Ji Xu, the preface to the poems collected from the Orchid Pavilion. Backhouse was hoping that this second donation would entice the people at Oxford to offer him that chair in Chinese studies. But when it was finally vacated in March of 1915, rather than offer it to Backhouse, they held out and kept it empty. The Great War was raging in Europe, and matters related to filling the vacant chair of Chinese studies at Oxford were not considered a high priority. No one was paying attention to this for the time being. Edmund Backhouse, to those who knew him, was always considered a little strange. First of all, he was already a well-known recluse. He never lived amongst the foreigners in the Beijing Foreign Legation ghetto. He always lived apart, except during the Boxer Rebellion, where he was forced to flee to the safety of the legation quarter. It was funny. He sort of stayed apart from the Westerners, but when anyone would run into him, like turning on a switch, Backhouse turned from being a reclusive loner to the most charming, polite, courteous, helpful person anyone ever met. In 1915, Backhouse, in his letters to Bland, complained constantly of his declining health and dire poverty. No one ever saw him, and he would just disappear for the longest time. But now, those who knew Backhouse believed he was someone with some serious mental problems. 
His behavior was very erratic, and he was obviously not someone who acted like normal people do. Bland began to notice this with some alarm. Despite all these rumors about Backhouse's strange behavior, someone who didn't know Backhouse all that well gave his name to Sir John Jordan, the British minister in Beijing. You see, with World War I going on, within a year, suddenly there was a shortage of bombs, weapons, and ammunition. I know with all the chaos going on in China, it's hard to believe this, but China was an arms supplier back then. One reason was that warehouses in China were filled to the brim with all this Russian and European hardware. It was a seller's market, and the Brits were looking to China to supply a lot of what was needed on the continent to fight the Germans. The only problem was that it was technically not legal for China to sell these arms. But Jordan didn't let this get in his way. If they couldn't do it overtly, they'd do it secretly. And their secret agent to procure these arms from the Chinese and ship them quietly to England was none other than Edmund Backhouse. By funneling the purchases through an agent rather than buying them directly, allowed the British to have at least a fig leaf of deniability if they got caught. John Brown Limited still had Backhouse in their employ and their Management were informed by the Foreign Office that they were using Backhouse for some clandestine arms purchases and that this was all hush-hush and no one should say a thing. On June 25, 1915, Backhouse's career as a secret agent for the British legation in Beijing began. This was quite exciting to a guy like Backhouse. His mission, impossible, was a modest one. Procure 200,000 rifles. Jordan told Backhouse he was totally on his own. The British government couldn't have any fingerprints at all on whatever deal he could bring to the table. He had to do it all on his own. They would arrange the financing, of course, but it was up to Backhouse to find these arms and get them shipped to wherever directed. Jordan felt immediate gratification when Backhouse quickly reported that he had found 150,000 rifles split up among five locations in China. And even better... He said he found a hundred Skoda Maxim machine guns. Jordan was practically dancing a jig. But that didn't last too long. Reality set in soon enough. You see, everyone, not just the British, were short on arms. Yeah, the Japanese, too, chasing the same supply Backhouse said he had procured. Because of the way everything was set up with Jordan, Backhouse controlled the narrative completely. Whatever he said... No one could corroborate it. They figured he had a good class background, this respectable job with a well-known armaments firm, had all this acclaim as a scholar. Both of his books by now had been published. <laughs> what was there to doubt? All the way into 1915, Backhouse kept reporting his progress, which was agonizingly slow. It was one setback after another, and all the while... Each disappointment was followed by a new claim from Backhouse that he had a lead on even more arms available for procurement. The financial negotiations were excruciating, and the British had to completely trust Backhouse on this. In Chinese, there's an old saying that goes, It means you can't wrap a fire with paper. The great uh, Benjamin Franklin put it less obliquely when he said in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1735, quote, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. Once this huge K-1 
cache of weapons Backhouse had arranged were supposedly laden on board a flotilla of vessels. Of course, word leaked out, and the Russians went straight to the British and said, uh, hey, what's up with those uh, weapons we heard about? Well, the British had no choice, being caught red-handed, but to come clean. Suddenly, this arms deal engineered by Backhouse with all the seemingly unnecessary complications, secrecy, broken promises, setback after setback, began to get a very sulfurous odor. And then, after all the disappointments and glitches, the vessels supposedly mistakenly entered Canton instead of the port of Hong Kong, and this entire secret transaction and all the cargo came under the control of the Chinese authorities down there. At this point, Sir John Jordan was ready to kill Backhouse, but for now he pushed him aside and plunged into the abyss to appeal to Yuan Shikai directly for a remedy. Liang Shiyi handled this on behalf of Yuan Shikai. Liang was Yuan's finance minister and one of his closest allies. Jordan explained everything from start to finish about what he had hoped to do. In the end, Liang Shiyi basically said, Backhouse who? At this point in October 1915, Jordan and a few associates went and tracked Backhouse down to his dwelling and practically frog-marched him to Liang Shiyi's office. And with everyone in the same room, the truth was revealed. Jordan had been totally duped. Backhouse had made this whole thing up, and he never at one time was ever fully in control of his deal. Was Edmund Backhouse a dupe? played by a bunch of opportunistic Chinese merchants who smelled money? Was he just inexperienced and out of his league on a mission like this? Or was he just living in a fantasy world, making all this stuff up behind a wall of secrecy and wasting everyone's time, money, and reputation? And Sir John Jordan, after carefully reviewing the series of events that led to what became known as the Backhouse Affair, came to the solid conclusion that, from start to finish, this was all a work of fiction, concocted inside Backhouse's head, and he had swallowed the story, hook, line, and sinker. All this waste of time, all these meetings and requests made to London, all a sham. Hugh Trevor Roper said of the Backhouse affair, quote, The unnamed Chinese authorities... The provincial governors, the rifles and machine guns, so exactly described and dated, the flotilla of ships and the whole dramatic history of their journey from Hanko to Canton, which had kept cipher clerks busy in Peking and London, caused legation officials to be sent to Shanghai and Hong Kong, and commanding generals to be initiated into profound secrets, which had sent the British minister plenipotentiary to wait on the president of China, ruffled the diplomatic waters in Tokyo and Petrograd, fetched two million pounds from London to Peking, and nearly brought a Japanese battlecruiser into the South China Sea, which had agitated pens in the Foreign Office and the War Office, exercised the Army Council and Lord Kitchener himself, drawn in the personal intervention of the Foreign Minister and the Colonial Secretary, been reported to the Cabinet, the Prime Minister, and the King. All this, it now seemed, was an insubstantial pageant, the baseless fabric of a dream, now suddenly dissolved, leaving not a rack behind. Jordan had to take a year off to recuperate from this crushing blow to his career and personal humiliation. He blamed himself for falling for all of Backhouse's hallucinations, 
For obvious reasons, this whole affair was kept low-key and was not well-publicized. You'd think Backhouse would be finished in this town, but a funny thing had happened. This was one of those you-never-know kind of things. In October 1916, the day Jordan and some other officials came to Backhouse's residence to bring him in front of Liang Shiyi and have that big old confrontation, a man named George Sylvester Hall was passing by, and he saw this Edmund Backhouse guy with the topmost guy in Beijing from the British Foreign Office and other high-ranking officials that he knew of. And there they were, such high-ups, personally calling on this Backhouse guy. He sure must be important. Hall knew of him from the first time they met on a ship in 1914. So imagine when Hall ran into Backhouse on October 11th, and Hall, not knowing anything about the just-concluded Backhouse affair, appeared thrilled beyond words that fate had delivered Backhouse to him. And Backhouse caught on quite early that this George Hall and his company desperately needed a guy like him in China. Hall aggressively courted Backhouse and tried to recruit him. Backhouse acted coy, but kept fueling the fire, letting Hall know how connected he was to the government, and whatever you needed, he could get anything done. This was music to the ears of Hall. George Hall was the China rep for the American Banknote Company. You've probably all handled their wares at one time or another. They are a New York-based company founded in the 18th century, and they make printed money, stock certificates, stamps, and all kinds of engraved and printed items. They're still around today. They were after the same thing all these railroad and infrastructure people were after, who were running around China after the fall of the Qing. They were looking for government contracts. ABN wanted contracts to print government money, stamps, bonds, whatever they can get. So Hall figured he made the catch of the century when he successfully recruited Edmund Backhouse to be a pitchman for the American Banknote Company. He would be paid a 2% commission and all expenses paid. You have to remember, he was this China expert amongst men who were educated, but basically the type that didn't know anything about China. So Backhouse knew these guys would be easy meat for him. They had Backhouse up on a pedestal and they were hanging on his every word. By the fall of 1915, things in China are going to take a turn for the worse. It was around this time that Yuan Shikai started having all these ideas about becoming emperor. So things in Beijing were in a major state of flux. Backhouse cleverly used the chaos of the times as a perfect backdrop for his next big deal. October the following year, Backhouse announced he scored a 10-year deal for ABN to print China's money. One big caveat was, of course, Backhouse's calling card was that total and complete secrecy had to be maintained at all times. No one could talk or poke their nose around or ask questions. No one at ABN knew about Backhouse's arms deal that went awry, so there was no reason to suspect anything at this point. Then, while everyone's hands were still red from all the high-fiving, Backhouse announced an even bigger deal. 650 million banknotes to be ordered by the China government. 50 million per year for 13 years. Like the last deal, not closed by the way, total secrecy had to be maintained. Back at the head office in New York, you couldn't believe the euphoria. On the strength of this purchase order, signed by President Li Yuanhong and Prime Minister Duan Qirei, 
You all remember Duan Shi Rei. He'll be signing those uh, Nishihara loans in another year or so. So without a cent collected, Hall was given a raise and a new title. He was a, he was a hero at the head office. He was the one who had found Backhouse and brought him to the American banknote fold and who had brought such good fortune to the company through his magnificent connections in China. Backhouse pocketed 5,600 pounds commission in advance, plus all his expenses paid. And when he handed in that expense report, I am sure there was enough padding in there to open up an upholstery factory. So what happened after that? Absolutely nothing. There was an excuse for everything that didn't get followed up or didn't happen. And the reputation of the China government back in Yuan Shikai's time was such that Whatever excuse you gave, no matter how far out, seemed within the realm of possibilities. So Backhouse had a lot of material to work with. Hall tried and tried and tried to nail Backhouse down, but no matter what, this deal couldn't get executed. Hall appealed to Backhouse, saying the commish was prepaid. He, meaning Hall, had been given a raise and a promotion just on the strength of this order. He was, he was looking bad now. Backhouse had to do something. And to make matters worse, Hall had been duped by Backhouse all this time into investing a lot of his personal funds into all kinds of scams that didn't pan out. Unfortunately, Hall had put his complete trust in Backhouse. Well, Backhouse didn't do anything to ameliorate the uh, ABN 650 million banknote order situation except by laying low. By 1917, Hall figured out he'd been had, just like Jordan did. There never was any order, and Backhouse was on the run now, purposely avoiding him. When they did meet up later in 1917, Backhouse charmed Hall and managed to squirm away without any damage. But on October 3rd, 1917, Hall officially severed all official relations between the American Banknote Company and Edmund Backhouse. Then on November 8, 1917, Backhouse met Hall at the Kyoto Hotel and paid him 10,650 pounds to settle this matter between them. Hall's guilt and humiliation at ABN devastated him, and he did what he could to salvage his reputation and cover his company's losses. By 1918, Backhouse's name around certain circles was mud. His reputation had been besmirched, and all of this talk had made its way back to Oxford. Backhouse had gone from a great and mighty benefactor to a bit of an embarrassment who they weren't sure what to do with. The chair of Chinese studies at Oxford that Backhouse had seemed to shoo in to get was still left vacated. It would stay that way till 1921, and when they filled it, it wouldn't be Backhouse's rear end sitting in it. Backhouse's father, Jonathan, died July 27th, 1918, and being the oldest, he inherited his father's baronetcy. No money came with it, but at least now he was Sir Edmund Backhouse. In 1920, Backhouse caught a big break in that his one-time sponsor and later nemesis, Dr. George Ernest Morrison, died. No one had done more to try and unmask Backhouse during the past decade than Morrison. Now he was gone. He had compiled quite a dossier on Backhouse and planned to release it. So Backhouse dodged that bullet. Morrison had given up a stellar career at the Times to go serve as an advisor to Yuan Shikai. 
Bad career move. He died in Devon and is buried there today. 1920 saw another episode in the life of Backhouse, which, by the way, I haven't mentioned yet. He'd tell people when he met them his name was pronounced Bacchus, like, uh, you know, the, the, the Greek god Dionysus. He had a dialogue going with the new head of the Bodleian Library, Arthur Cowley. First, he had earlier made the sensational claim that he had secured the palace edition of the Yongzheng Encyclopedia. The Yongzheng Emperor, of course, the hard-working son of the Kangxi Emperor and the father of Qianlong. Backhouse claimed to have 10,000 volumes of the palace edition of the encyclopedia commissioned by the Yongzheng Emperor. The only problem was it could never be found. Kali had done everything Backhouse asked of him to secure such a treasure as this, but when everything was supposed to ship and nothing got laden on board... Backhouse was appalled and swore to look into this at once. You know, there was most likely no Yongzheng Encyclopedia to begin with. But not to worry, while all this was being worked out, Backhouse presented to Cowley another great treasure, 18 valuable manuscripts that he had already fronted the money for. Despite protests, Backhouse made the Bodley and cough up the funds to make good on what he had prepaid. Backhouse was strongly insistent that for this particular donation, he didn't want to attach his name to it. These 18 manuscripts are going to prove a headache later. Then, right on the heels of these 18 manuscripts and other manuscripts Backhouse tried to pass off, he announced the most astounding find of all. He claimed he had within his reach 40,000 volumes from the famous Palace Library. This was going to rock the world of Synology even more than Backhouse's first donation. Backhouse was more and more taking on a bad smell at the Bodleian for all the troubles that seemed to flow from him. The Bodleian found themselves often fronting money, and then whatever they were paying for would never show up. And all along, Backhouse would make a big deal all the time about the importance of secrecy and insisting no one knew he was in on this. When things were looking grim... Backhouse announced the Palace Library collection that he was able to get his hands on was now 58,000 volumes and that it was on its way from Gansu to Beijing for unpacking and sorting. More money was demanded from Backhouse and the Bodleian dutifully paid up, anxious to get their hands on such rarities. Then, when things would reach a critical stage, Backhouse would disappear again. No one could find him. Edmund Backhouse returned to China in 1921 and pretty much from that point on became a recluse living in his house in the Tartar city. His behavior became more and more erratic and people who ran into him found him terribly strange. He had given up these dreams of riches through entrepreneurship and other means. Instead of chasing this lifestyle, he planned to lay low and live the traditional life of a Confucian scholar. In the end, he didn't get the chair at Oxford. That went to William Edward Soothill instead, a scholar who had achieved some fame for his translation of the Analects by Confucius. Once Backhouse was situated in Beijing, he contacted Cowley with the usual long list of excuses and complaints about his health and all the difficulties he faced, of, and of course letting Cowley know about his dismal financial situation. But too many things were just not happening, and rumors about Backhouse's erratic and unstable behavior were by now well known. 
all the while, when everyone was losing hope at Oxford, Backhouse would still say the Palace Library was going to happen. He was on it. Just give him a little more time or send a little more money. Everyone in the know began to talk amongst themselves, and the upshot was that no one trusted Backhouse anymore. In September 1923, M.E. Weatherall went to the Baudelian to investigate the authenticity of some documents Backhouse had donated. He was highly suspicious of Backhouse and knew of him. He began spreading word around that it was wise not to trust Sir Edmund Backhouse. Those at the Baudelian who had been cooperating with Backhouse began to panic. They had already advanced so much money to Backhouse for works that never showed up. They began to carry out damage control not only for their financial losses, but for the embarrassment they would face for falling victim to Backhouse's scams. Then the venerable sonologist Lionel Giles, after giving these 18 manuscripts donated by Backhouse a thorough once-over, pronounced them as forgeries. The paper, the ink, the calligraphy, and the content, all suspect. The new head of Chinese studies at Oxford, Edward Soothill, studied the manuscripts as well and concurred with Giles. Backhouse would never forgive Lionel Giles for this and reserve plenty of venom and vitriol for him later on. An ad hoc committee set up to deal with damage control agreed that the best case was to admit they were taken in by Backhouse due to the importance of the previous donations he had made to the Baudelian. They decided to eat their losses after they could get no relief from the estate of Sir Jonathan Backhouse. On March 24, 1924, Backhouse replied in the usual, most courteous and Victorian manner that he stood by everything he donated and that everything was authentic. He denied all the allegations in as kind a way as possible, told the Baudelian to stuff it, and this resulted in a bit of a tussle between Backhouse and the Baudelian. Two years later, Edward Soothill, in an unofficial capacity, visited Backhouse in Beijing. Soothill revealed to Cowley that, quote, Backhouse is believed to be entirely under the thumb of a Chinese servant who evidently has some power over him. He sees no one, and when out in a rickshaw, if a European comes in sight, he covers his head and face with a handkerchief. He has disposed of his house in the country and of his carriage, and lives in a corner of his old house, his servant controlling the rest of it. Soothill further described Backhouse to Cowley as looking thin, impoverished, as Chinese gown, threadbare. He said the guy was in bad shape and obviously in some financial straits. And as far as the 18 manuscripts were concerned, Backhouse was insistent they were still genuine. That was about it as far as Backhouse and the Baudelian were concerned. By 1926, they parted ways, and not amicably, I might add. And I can only say when Backhouse died... Not only did the Baudelian not write in a bit, they didn't even send flowers either. Between the forged 18 manuscripts and the vast palace collection that never happened, Backhouse had destroyed all his credibility. As far as the diary of His Excellency Jingshan, with Morrison dead, the drumbeat to examine it for authenticity died down. But given all the recent revelations, that mystery was examined with a little more detail and scrutiny. Lionel Giles had arranged for the noted Dutch sonologist J.J.L. Duivendak to study the diary and render an opinion. Duivendak was very respected in his day, so everyone was most anxious for his opinion. 
No one could have been more interested than J.O.P. Bland. Bland had lived under a cloud of suspicion ever since Morrison began attacking Jingshan's diary in late 1910. Imagine Bland's utter relief when not only Divendek pronounced the diary authentic, Sir Reginald Johnston as well concurred on Divendek's finding. Johnston, of course, the tutor to Puyi, portrayed so well by the late great Peter O'Toole in The Last Emperor, Bland felt vindicated and relieved at last. This cloud of suspicion was lifted. Backhouse was oblivious to all this, holed up in his Tartar City dwelling, living under his servant who, it appears, abused him and controlled his movements. I thought I'd be able to finish Sir Edmund off in this episode, but it looks like this is going to go to three parts. I hope you don't mind. We'll pick up uh, next time and look at the amazing conclusion of the life of Backhouse. He's going to finish off with a bang and write himself into the history books, or at least into popular culture. So I do hope you won't give up after two episodes and will consider coming back for part three. This is once again Laszlo Montgomery signing off from lovely Claremont, California, thanking you sincerely, profusely, and humbly for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.